0: Well, it is Christmas week, and I think it's safe to say that there are parts of Christmas week that we kind of all like, and then there are parts that we can do without, perhaps. And personally, I love time with family. I love the extra time we get with family. I love the food, the giving and receiving of gifts. I love the Christmas Eve service, shameless plug, Friday, 5 p.m. I love the music of Christmas. Well, let me, let me clarify that. I love the hymns like we've just sang as the music of Christmas. I can do without Mariah Carey. I can definitely do without (laughs) Bruce Springsteen and Santa Claus is coming to town, and and, and Grandma got run over by a reindeer, and everything else like that. That's that's not that I could do without all of that. I could do without all of the Christmas rush, and the traffic, and the madness, and all of that. I love the depth of what we just sang. I hope you resonated with some of those words that we've been singing. A couple quotes. "O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. And of course, hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Watch this. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Amen. That's what the Christ child came to do. To reconcile sinners back to God. That is the music that we sing. That is the celebration. And, and the danger of the Christmas season is that we lose the, the, the theological depth and the spiritual realities of songs like O oh, Little Town of Bethlehem and Hark the Herald Angels Sing in the blur of shopping and everything else. The spiritual reality of Christmas is that a Savior has come. But the Bible also tells us that the reality of Christmas is that the Savior is actually returning as well. I want to look at Isaiah this morning as we read in chapter 11. When the scripture speaks of the coming of Jesus the first time, church, note that he also in the same breath will talk about his return the second time. It's my hope and prayer that the Holy Spirit will fill our hearts with the truth this morning as we jump into Isaiah 11. Last week, of course, we looked at the Savior who was delivered up from Isaiah 53. This is what the promised Messiah came to do. He came to be delivered up as our substitute for sin. Ultimately, he was delivered up so that we might live. And to truly live means to walk in the life that God has for you. And that's not a prosperity gospel thing. That is a life that is not characterized by sin. That is characterized said by being dead to sin and being alive to righteousness. And we had a good discussion in care group about flushing that out or just a, a very quick discussion about it. I mean, at the macro level, right, it means that we are walking in the ways that Christ has called us to, not in sin. But at the micro level, it's all of us so where are we walking in sin and therefore not walking in the life that God has for us and that's different for each one of us that's what the light of the gospel of Christ does the holy spirit does as it shines that light in our hearts and hopefully in community with one another in bible studies and under the preaching of the word and in relationships and all of that this week we continue our look at the word of God of course this advent season Even as we enter into Christmas week, let's look again in Isaiah 11 for the Savior that has come and that is returning. The first two verses, again, let's refresh ourselves. There came forth from, or or there came, or there shall, let me try this again. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So again, context, right? Three rules of biblical interpretation. Context, context, context. We're jumping into Isaiah. We don't have the luxury of of going through Matthew that we do week after week after week. So we kind of have to set the context a little bit. This is about seven Centuries before the birth of Jesus Christ, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to Israel, a nation that is under God's judgment. Why? Because they broke the covenant that they had with their their creator, their sustainer, their sovereign king. What is imminent is death and invasion, defeat and exile. But nestled among those prophecies that are dark of exile and, and all of that, are, are prophecies of hope or prophecies of healing of prophecies of renewal and, and verse one tells us that there will be a a shoot coming from the stump which is kind of weird unless you didn't read chapter 10 which tells you in the last verse that he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe And before that, he says that they in great height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. So what, what Isaiah is saying there is that the pride of Israel in their haughtiness and in their rejection of God and their elevation of themselves, God's going to literally cut them down like a tree. And what will remain is a stump. Israel was this great tree, as it were, and will be a stump after judgment because it will be cut down by the Lord himself. But, he says, and if you ever cut down a tree in your yard and you haven't stumped it out and hadn't gotten rid of the stump, you're going to notice that there's going to, there's going to be stuff that's going to grow. And so a shoot will spring out from that stump, a branch, if you will. And with that word, we, we add all this prophetic symbolism that is repeated by other prophets about a shoot and a, a twig And a root, and for example, Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And now we got some other language coming in here. We've got King David in here. We've got a righteous branch. In my Bible, that's capitalized. This is a prophecy of the Messiah, and we see that. The Messiah will come from Israel. Israel the stump, but the Messiah will still come. Israel's lack of faith will not nullify God's promise to be faithful. God will still uphold his covenant, his redemptive plan, even though Israel did not. Can we all just say amen about that, please? Because we need that, too. God will fulfill the work that is in us. He will not abandon us. He will hold us fast. And we are so grateful that salvation's not up to us. Because if it was, we could definitely mess it up. But God is the one that holds us fast. And we see that this sounds like a king from David. Back in Isaiah 11, it says, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So Jesse, if you know your Bible and, and the genealogies, Jesse is David's father. And so we know that this is going to come through the line of David, which in fact Jesus did. And it says he will reign. He will rule like a king, like a Messiah who will come to rule and reign. But this Messiah will not just be king simply because he came from the right family. Isaiah adds more. He says he's also going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Spirit is capitalized. He's going to have the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. He's going to be empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit is alive and well in the Old Testament. Some people maybe don't realize that. The Spirit was there at creation, hovering above the waters. The Spirit empowered Old Testament saints to do what they had to do. How many times did the Spirit come upon David in order that he did what he had to do, right? The Spirit just didn't show up in the New Testament and say, okay, guys, I got here as quick as I... Could, what, what, what did I miss? What do you need me to do? Just stand over there and speak in tongues in the corner. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Spirit being part of the Trinity. is where it gets thick. Because we see, even in Isaiah, we see the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity being that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all three essences of one God. They each have a role to play, and they each have a role to play in redemption. And we see here that the Spirit is going to empower Jesus, the Son, to do the plan of the Father. So they're all involved in the redemptive plan of God. We also saw that at Jesus' baptism. If you can remember back that far, when we were in Matthew, whatever that was, 4 or something like that, last year, where Jesus was baptized and the dove came down, the Spirit came down on Jesus the Son, and there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my Son on him who I am well pleased. The Trinity involved the Spirit empowering Jesus for the work. The role of the Spirit is also very important, not only because it's part of the power of the Messiah while on earth, but it will continue to empower who? Us. His church. The Spirit will continue to empower us as His church to be His disciples in each one of our lives. Look at what that empowerment is going to look like, just like it looked for Jesus. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. This is what it will look like. The fear of the Lord. And anytime we drop that, Fear of the Lord, okay, what does that mean? It means a respect. It means a reverence. It means an awe. It means deep regard, right? a heaviness, consideration of the Lord, Yahweh, above all things. And all through coming of the Savior, the Messiah, and all through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'll say it this way. The coming of the Savior brought the power of the Holy Spirit. Coming of the power brought the Savior of the the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to be clear. It's not that the coming of the Savior brought the Holy Spirit. Right? We said that already. Spirit's already here. He was already involved. The Spirit is eternal, just like all the other two aspects of the Trinity, the two persons of the Trinity, I should say. Correction. But rather, the Holy Spirit was brought in unique power, in a unique way, upon Jesus. And this is a major part of the plan of the coming of the Savior, which is Jesus Christ. But not one that was first understood by the disciples. If we go over to New Testament, and we kind of cheat a little bit, because we can... We go to John 14, and we see that just in, in, in famous John 14, it's the famous dialogue where Jesus has to disciples and says, guess what, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't come. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? What do you, mean, what do you mean you're going away, and what do you mean we don't know the way to come, and what does this mean? And then he drops the famous, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And they're like, okay, well, that helps a little. I still don't understand what you're talking about. And Jesus goes on to promise the Holy Spirit. Look at John 14, starting in verse 25. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus says, quieting the hearts of very, very worried disciples. Disciples who are hearing the news that makes them anxious and afraid. News of an uncertain future. And Jesus promises them a helper. And in chapter 16, he even says, guys, this is the way it has to be. It's better that I go away because then the Spirit will come. I know you don't understand this, but you will understand it. The Holy Spirit will come, and it's better that I go away. The Holy Spirit will come. He will be your helper, one who will point them to himself, one, he says, that will ultimately bring peace, and peace comes only through the power of the Holy Spirit, pointing to the gospel of Jesus, to the glory of God. A peace that is grounded in, as Isaiah says, his wisdom, his understanding, his counsel, his strength, his knowledge, all in the fear of God. A peace that is powerful. And my question is, do you have that powerful peace this Christmas? First of all, there's only one way that we can experience that powerful peace. And as Romans 5.1 tells us, point blank, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You you can't have peace anywhere else in your life unless you have peace in your soul first with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that has to happen. A lot of times we think about putting out all these other fires in our lives, but the first thing we have to have is peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's my first question is do you have that powerful peace of the spirit this Christmas? If not, the ultimate gift is here. What better time than to accept that gift to repent and believe to take that step of faith today to believe in Jesus Christ. But for us Church, right? Us, churchy church, us Christians, right? We who supposedly have obtained this peace through the power of the Spirit, think for a minute. Are you spending more time walking in that power of that peace? Or are you walking in fear, worry, and anxiety? Maybe you're consumed of thoughts with your own power. Right? It's one of those things like prayer, right? If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray? If Jesus needed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to do what the Father called him to do, how much more so do we need to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit in order to do what Jesus has called us to do? And good news, he's given it to us. He just told the disciples in John 14 and in John 16, we have the power of the Holy Spirit because of the work and only because of the work of Jesus Christ. If he didn't die, if he wasn't resurrected from the dead, and if he didn't ascend back to heaven, we would not have the Holy Spirit in our lives, but he did, and so we do. That's the good news. Maybe you're consumed of thoughts with your own power. What can I control? What am I not controlling this Christmas that I think I need? Control is an illusion. Can we just talk about that for a second? Like, you don't control anything. 99.9% of the stuff, right? We think we have control over things, but we don't. But where does that leave us? We trust in the one who does. Does have perfect control of things. Maybe the power that you wish you had over a relationship or a situation or of a sickness or of Omicron or whatever else it is. Needless to say, we need to be walking in the power of that peace. This Christmas and always. A Christian's life should be one that is characterized by walking in the power of that peace. Just like The Savior came. Are we taking advantage of the common means of grace? That's where it's like, okay, cool, Pastor Mike. Tell me the five things that I need to do in order to walk in this peace. Well, (laughs) I have to give you the common means of grace. I know it's like not the most exciting answer that you want to hear, but God's given us this. You should try reading it. You should try memorizing it. You should try meditating it. You should try being here with the fellowship of the saints you should try praying. You should try fasting. You should try the spiritual disciplines. These things, they're not the crazy, wonderful, shiny things, right? But they're the means of grace that God has given us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we do. We walk in community with each other. We, we pray for each other. We, we walk with each other. We're vulnerable with each other. We grow in our care groups, our Bible studies, and our family relationships. That's how we walk out the power of the Spirit. Are we holding fast to Jesus this Christmas in the power of the Holy Spirit through the common means of grace? Are we realizing who it is that won that peace for us? The one who's ruling and reigning right now and is perfectly and completely good. He is completely fair. He is completely just. And that's where Isaiah goes next. Look at verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins." Isaiah goes on to tell us more about this coming Savior. It says he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Second time we've run into that in this passage again. We've got to remember what it doesn't mean, abject, irrational terror. Okay, like if you hate spiders or snakes or something like that. It's not that kind of fear. Okay? It doesn't mean an irrational, anxiety-fueled terror of a fickle and capricious God. Because he is not like that. But rather, again, it means a reverence. It means a weightiness. Do we we consider him and his word and his precepts and his commandments far above everything else? Do we look to please him more than ourselves? Do we give our, our will over to his will? Do we walk in an understanding of his holiness and his power? Does that mean something to us more than it doesn't? And again... This isn't saying that Jesus is terrified of the Father. It's not saying that the Savior, the Messiah, will be terrified of the Father. Rather, He delights to revere Him. He delights to fear Him. It is in His joy serving the Father in the global plan of redemption. It's one of the common atheistic arguments or agnostic arguments progressive christian arguments we went over this a couple weeks ago right that it's so cruel that god made his son go to the cross and killed him it's divine child abuse it's terrible why would anybody do that it's not what the bible says he said for the joy set before him christ endured the cross Christ says, because of the great love in which he loved us, he did it out of his own free will. He's not, he's not, no one's taking his life from him, he says. I am giving it up out of my own free will, out of my delight in fearing the Lord, in serving this plan of redemption. But also, as Savior, Isaiah tells us that he will be a judge and so how will he judge? He says he won't judge with mere eyes or situations or merely what he hears. He won't make judgments based on evidence, like in a, a court of law, judging something. Here, here's the really important part. He won't be judging something by an external standard. He won't be looking at something and saying, well, okay, well, here's the perfect standard of justice, like a human judge hopefully does. Looks at something and says, oh, okay, this appears just because I'm comparing it with this. Hopefully that's the law, right? I'm comparing it with our law, and so therefore, that's not what the Messiah is going to do. He's not going to use his eyes. He's not going to use his ears to do that. Rather, what? He is the standard. He will judge by what? He will judge by his own self, his own righteousness, his own fairness. He will decide with equity, he will speak up for justice for the poor, for the meek. Righteousness and faithfulness, it says, is, are the very articles of clothing that he wears. In all other things, in God's characteristics, right, we have these things. We think something is righteous or good or fair. Why? Because we compare it to something else. That's not how it works with God. There's nothing to compare God to. God is The standard of righteousness and justice and fairness. And so he's not going to judge these things by mere human means. He's going to judge them in perfect righteousness. How? And the answer is what we looked at last week. He will do that ultimately. There are other expressions, but he will do that ultimately by being delivered up. Delivered up to die on a cross in our place as the sacrifice, the payment for sin. The perfect righteous payment. There is no greater act of justice than the cross of Jesus Christ, who by that work judged perfectly, freed us from sin, punished those who oppressed the poor and the marginalized, and at the cross, God's holiness and his throne were vindicated. We said last week, use the R.C. Sproul term, cosmic treason. If sin was cosmic treason then the cross is divine justice if sin were cosmic treason then the cross is divine justice it is only through god in the flesh the messiah jesus the anointed savior and so not only will the coming of the savior did it bring the power of the spirit but will also coming of the savior brought justice coming of the Savior brought justice, and justice is a huge word these days. Anytime we have a major trial going on, there are cries for justice, whether it's accusations against the police, Galan Maxwell, Jesse Smollett, the world is quick to call for justice, is it not? But there's the problem, right? A culture that has rejected the standard of justice, that has rejected God how can they judge what's just? If they have kicked out the standard of justice, how can they judge? I'm not saying that they never judge what's just, but there's something in the mix, and it's sin. Sin blurs. It it, it warps our brains. It's a noetic effect of the fall that theologians talk about, right? Our whole body is is cursed and infected by sin. Our thoughts are are processing all of that, especially in the case of a non-believer. And sometimes, although it is fairly obvious to see what is just, sometimes it seems cut and dry, right? Sometimes you might look at the news and be like, wow, I kind of feel like they got that one right for a change. But then what? Even human concepts of justice are still stained with sin. And so as Christians, before we can go off into battle and cry aloud for justice for others, we have to start with biblical justice. And when we start with biblical justice, we start with God himself as the standard of justice and the injustice that was done to him as the creator of the universe, the king, the rightful ruler of all his creation. There was no greater injustice ever done than what creation did to its creator. Because we were his creatures. We were, we were created to delight in him and enjoy him forever. And yet we rejected him and turned inwardly on ourselves and said, no, I don't need you. I am my own king. This is my own kingdom. And we have kicked him out of creation. We have fractured our relationship with our creator. We have unleashed sin and sickness and death and evil in the world as a result. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, did this in the garden, and we've been doing it ourselves ever since. Isaiah is writing to Israel who broke the covenant that God established with them as his people. They oppressed the poor among them. They elevated those that are religious, or the religious system at the expense of the poor and the marginalized and the widows. And God did something about it. He judged Israel in exile. Our text tells us that he killed the wicked. It's amazing that he didn't abandon his, his global plan of redemption. It's amazing he didn't abandon that right when Adam and Eve sinned at that point. But he, he knew that. He knew that was going to happen. He knew Israel was not going to be able to keep the covenant. He knows that we're up to us. We would never obey in perfect faithfulness. We cannot be justified through the law, and he knows that. That's why his plan of salvation includes grace It includes the Savior. It has to. That's the central focus of his plan. The amazing thing is he didn't abandon his global plan of redemption due to Adam and Eve's unfaithfulness, due to Israel's unfaithfulness, doing, even our unfaithfulness, even though he judged them and still judges us even through the cross. He was still determined to bring justice, and he would do so himself one way and one way only, through the cross. Romans 3, 21 to 26 is a foundational passage when we think of God's justice through the cross. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, big Bible word meaning wrath-bearing sacrifice. God put forward as a wrath-bearing sacrifice by his blood to be received, how? By faith. This was to show God's righteousness. This was to show God's justice, his perfection. It was to show those things. Why? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Watch this. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Do you guys understand the depth of that, especially that last statement? God has to punish sin. He has to, otherwise he would not be God. He has to punish sin. This is moral cosmic rebellion against him. So he has to punish sin, and he has to do so in such a way that justifies himself. But there's no way that anyone else besides himself can do that. Enter the Messiah, who will be just and the means of our justification. He will be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Do you see the glory of the plan of redemption there? It has to be that way. This is how the Savior brought justice. He literally became the means of our justification. God is both just and the justifier who have, of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the one whom Isaiah said would come, wearing righteousness and faithfulness as clothing, the perfect embodiment of justice, and the only means for us sinners who rejected God To be reconciled and forgiven in his sight. But as close as we can get, church, sometimes is justice on our earth. The world is is just not built for perfect justice. We know that. We're reminded of that. But that is the next world. That is the world that Jesus brings and ushers in when he returns. And that's where Isaiah goes next. Look at verse 6. He says, The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw, like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Did you guys catch some of those things that were happening in there, right? There's a lot of animal references. Wolves don't hang out with sheep, right? Wolves eat sheep. Leopards don't lie down with goats. They eat them. I follow Nature is Metal on Instagram. You do not want to watch that over lunch or anything like that. What nature does to nature and lions do, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Lions don't eat straw. They eat other animals. They're carnivores. You get the idea. Children, just parenting tip, children shouldn't go near cobras, okay? They shouldn't go near poisonous snakes. One of the things mom and dad should watch out for. Is my child playing near a rattlesnake den or something. Bad things will happen, right? These are all things that happen in creation right now. Why? Sin. With sin came death. And so, yes, the tiny baby zebra gets eaten by the lion, and that's the way that it works. And the mama doesn't feel too bad about that. It's just kind of the way that it works in the animal kingdom, right? Again, We went over it last week. Death is in the world because of sin. Pain and sickness and evil and death and bloodshed and all that stuff is in the world because of sin. But Isaiah is pointing to a time in the future where sin won't hurt us anymore. Why? Because the knowledge of God will be all over the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's why. When will this happen? It's not going to happen necessarily today. It didn't happen last Tuesday. It happens, in other words, in, in that day. Look at final two verses in 10 and 11. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse, again bringing us back full circle now, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and of his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his, ta- his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from assyria from egypt from pathros from cush from alam from shinar from hamath and from the coastlands of the sea anytime scripture especially the old testament drops that old in that day or on that day it's talking about the day of the lord it's talking about the day of judgment again in context right it's what it's the day that god judges israel when Babylon and the Assyrian Empire roll right through their front door and take them to exile. That's the day of judgment for them. But it's also then hinting and talking about a future day of the Lord. Right? One commentator said when you're in Isaiah, you have those, those mountains that are right in front of you, but then you also have the mountains that are farther away in the distance. He's talking about both. He's talking about how God will fulfill that in his day, in that context. But there's also mountains in the distance. There's also the Lord returning at the end of time. And again, shameless plug for midweek. Talking about revelation. Talking about the end. We're talking about the last day. We're talking about judgment. and We know it is about the return of Christ. I ask that at the beginning of every midweek, and they always look at me like, I don't understand. Like, what's revelation about? And they're like, I don't know. You hurt our brain every time we come in here. And we walk out more confused than we came in it it's like, okay, cookies on the bottom shelf. It's about the return of Jesus Christ, okay? That's what it's about. And spoiler alert, he wins. That's what you got to keep in mind. His enemies are defeated. His, his people are gathered together with him, okay? That's what the message of Revelation is. And in that day, there won't only be judgment, but it'll be a day of consummation. It's the fourth part of the story. We talk about breaking up the whole biblical meta-narrative in four parts, right? God created the world. He did so. We immediately fell into sin. That's the second part. But God knew that, and he provided what? A redeemer in Jesus Christ. And one day, he will return, right? We live right here, right now, in between like our, our ring finger and our little pinky finger, Right? We're waiting for that day when Christ will return. That's the fourth part of the story. Christ will return. That's what we're talking about here in Isaiah. The day of consummation, the day of judgment, the day where he defeats his enemies, and the day where he ushers us in to an eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Isaiah is pointing to. And he says again, in that day, the root of who? Jesse, just in case you weren't clear, The root of Jesse, the Messiah, Jesus, just like in verse 1, it says he will be a signal to all the peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. They will find salvation in Jesus. And he will gather his faithful ones from every corner of the earth, those that are his. And of course, the book of Revelation is all over this. Most Christians don't go near the book of Revelation. Some Christians spend way too much time in the book of Revelation. And at midweek, I have been encouraging us not to practice Fox News eschatology or CNN eschatology or whatever else you want to say not some secret code they were like oh well that happened in israel so that corresponds to this over here and so this i've unlocked it i figured it out jesus is coming back friday that's not (laughs) what it's talking about one commentator says that's not an official i don't want to hear from the elders on that one i didn't mean it that's not what i'm saying one commentator writes that revelation is not a puzzle book it's a picture book we're supposed to see these things. It's mostly symbolic imagery of the end of the story when Jesus returns to judge his enemies and usher in his new eternal kingdom. We've got to keep the big pieces on the chessboard. God is sovereign, Jesus is king, Jesus is still king now, he will be king, he will return to judge and consummate in order to do that what? Sin has to be banished. Things like we see here in Isaiah are going to happen. Little zebras are going to be safe. They're not going to get killed by lions anymore. Babies will play with snakes, although I still don't recommend that. Nothing's going to happen. And what a glorious day that shall be. Sin will not hurt us anymore. And we see that in Revelation. I think I put it in your bulletins, Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Why? The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be their mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Church, this can only happen through the power of Jesus Christ. It can only happen through the power and the justice of Jesus Christ. Perfect creation being restored. No more tears. No more mourning, no more grieving, no more pain. Why? Because on that day, the former things are gone. On that day, he judges it all forever, and sin is banished. And so for those of us who, yeah, it's Christmas, thanks for that. I remember losing a loved one, or I have a wound that still hurts. We remember that, and we say, church, there will be a day where that will be no more. We know that because Scripture tells us that. We rejoice because the Savior has come and the Savior will return. And so here's the big idea for us. The return of the Savior will bring eternal power and justice. The return of the Savior will bring eternal power and justice. When we talk about Advent, we think of the coming of Jesus. We're anticipating the coming of Jesus. But we can't just stop at his first coming. We've got to look ahead to his second coming coming his first coming brought the power of the spirit one that lives in the hearts of every believer of Jesus and empowers us to live lives that are pleasing to him if you ever have those days where you just feel like I just can't I can't Christian today you can because the Savior came and brought the Holy Spirit and he did the work perfectly and what he said to the disciples is true it lives in each one of us it empowers us through faith to live lives that are pleasing to him His first coming brought justice, justice for sin. God exercised the power of sin and death, and they were dealt a death blow, as it were, when he walked out of that tomb. And one day they will be banished from his kingdom forever. His second coming will be when he brings eternal power and eternal justice. Meaning that we will share with him in that for all of eternity. Creation will be restored. Sin will be gone. Sickness will be gone. Oppression will be gone. COVID will be gone. Shady politics and overreaching governments will be gone. All all of that. All will be restored to perfect order and balance by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Evidence that this will happen. How? What's the evidence that that will happen again? Because he came the first time, and he did the work, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas. But as we celebrate that this, this Christmas, look ahead to that second mountain off in the distance. Look ahead to the coming of Jesus. Don't put all your hope in this world. We can't. We're not going to redeem and restore this world perfectly. Jesus will. Christmas tells us that the Savior has come and that he is returning. There is so much theology in Christmas and Christmas carols. And again, I mean the good ones. When we truly understand the message of Christmas, the, the, the inevitable result of that should be joy. And we're saying joy to the world, why? Because the Lord has come, and he comes again. And this joy that the Savior has come should return then with overflowing abundance in our heart, and we need to grasp this and make room in our hearts this Christmas, this truth letting him rule in peace. We join with all nature in repeating the sounding joy that echoes across all of God's creation that he is good and he is just and he is fair and he has come and he is coming again. We make room in our hearts for this joy above all other earthly joys. Why? Because Jesus has come and he will return. He rules the world with truth and grace. And makes the nations prove what? The glories of his righteousness. Just like Isaiah tells us. And wonders of his love. The Savior has come and is returning. And at the return of the Savior, he will bring eternal power and justice. And let the earth receive her king. This is the hope of Christmas. Father, we thank you. That we see even in this passage in Isaiah, Lord, when we think about so many hundreds of years before the birth of the Savior, what you have done, what you have told through the prophet Isaiah of what it will look like, Lord. The coming of the Savior, the coming that brought us, Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit in that way through the work of Christ and now reigns with us in our hearts should reign over our hearts. We thank you that the coming of the Savior brought justice. And Lord, as we, as the family of God, as brothers and sisters together, Lord, we look forward to not only walking in the power of that this Christmas, but also what awaits us when the Savior returns. We pray that you will cause us to celebrate with great joy this season, celebrating Jesus, but also we look forward with great anticipation to where we will spend eternity with him forever in power and in justice. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.